This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam Chandon. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour airs at noon Eastern every Friday, and immediately after our show at 1 p.m. Eastern, stay tuned to Business Radio for Behind the Markets, hosted by Professor Jeremy Siegel and Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Schwartz. As always, you can access our past shows using the SiriusXM On Demand feature. If you have a question during today's discussion, please do give us a call at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also email your questions to businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Well, there's been a lot of discussion over the course of this cycle with regard to the amount of multifamily construction we've seen in the United States. Those are the large apartment buildings, very often Class A luxury towers in the middle of our urban cores. As it turns out, single-family rentals have been the fastest-growing segment of the housing market for the last 10 years. Between 2006 and 2016, the number of single-family homes for rent has grown from about 11 million units to over 15 million, and now accounts for almost one in four single-family homes in the United States. Now, this increase does not reflect a surge in single-family construction activity. Far from it, as we will discuss later in in today's program with Dr. Jenny Schutz from the Brookings Institution. Instead, it captures that roughly 10 million American homeowners lost their homes to foreclosure or short sale during the housing crisis. A majority of these homes were purchased by investors, including in some cases very large institutions. Joining me to talk about the market for single-family rental housing, my guest today is one of real estate's most influential economists. Dr. Frank Notaft is a recurring guest on the program and chief economist at CoreLogic, where he leads the team responsible for analysis, commentary, and forecasting of trends in global real estate, insurance, and mortgage markets. Before joining CoreLogic, Frank was chief economist at mortgage giant Freddie Mac. He came to Freddie Mac after completing his PhD at Columbia and then serving as economist with the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Frank, thanks for coming back to the program. Thanks for having me today, Sam. Frank, to kick us off, can you size the single-family rental market for us? I think for a lot of us, when we think about rental housing in the United States, we're thinking about that larger multifamily property, getting an apartment in a big building, in the urban core, but that's not the reality of rental housing in the country. It's really evolved so much over the last decade. As you mentioned, Sam, the number of one-family rental houses has increased by 4 million just over the last decade, growing from 11 million to 15 million in 2016. And that has really changed the complexion of the overall rental stock. There are now more rental homes in single family properties than there are in rental apartment buildings across the United States. So I know that you and I have discussed sort of issues around the, the shortage of new construction, particularly for starter homes. Where have all of these new single-family rental homes come from? Uh, well, where they came from was actually because of the foreclosure crisis that we had. As you mentioned, there were more than 10 million homeowners that lost their home through foreclosure or short sale 
after 2006. Many of those homes uh, ended up going to uh, uh, being purchased by investors. Now, some were sold to uh, new owner-occupants, but by far the largest uh, part of that has been sold to investors who've now uh, put those homes back into the market, but as rental houses. So when I look at the data on that ownership structure, those investors coming in to buy the homes, what I see is that although they may be folks who aren't living in the homes that they're buying, what we mean by investor actually varies quite a bit. And we've got a lot of folks, you know, the mom and pop who maybe owns, you know, a few houses uh, to an LLC or an LLP, uh, an institutional uh, investors in the market are a relatively smaller share. Is that a good characterization? What does that ownership landscape look like? That's great characterization. For one-family properties, still about 80% of all of those properties are owned by individual investors. And you can think of them as the mom and pops. Um, The biggest growth over the last decade has been the partnerships, corporations, REITs that have moved in and um, also acquired uh, single-family rental homes. But they account for about 17%, a little bit less than one in five, of the ownership of all single-family rental. And when we compare that with large apartment buildings, so rental apartment buildings with at least 50 apartments in it, it's a completely different picture. In the large apartment building market, nearly 80% of all of the units are owned by partnerships, corporations, and REITs. And the individual investor is just a really small component of the large apartment building ownership stock, only about 8% of all units in large apartment buildings are owned by individual investors. So it's a really completely different picture compared with one unit single family rental ownership. Yeah, I want to come back to this question of that ownership structure in just a couple of minutes, in particular, find out how it is that folks are uh, financing uh, their, their investments in single family homes. But before we do that, um, you know, all of this implies that there has been a significant growth in demand for single-family rental housing in the United States. And my, my intuition here is that in part this reflects or you know, is a, uh, you know, uh, the result of uh, the, the housing crisis, the way it's impacted, the way we think about home ownership, our ability to get mortgages. How quickly and how much has the demand for single-family homes grown uh, and what really is driving it? Well, the demand has grown commensurate with the supply. Now, some of it's because homeowners were displaced through foreclosure and short sale, but still with their families prefer to live in a single-family home. It's just that their tenure type has changed. They're no longer the owner-occupant. They became renters of a single-family rental. So that's part of it. And part of it, too, is the big growth in the number of um, millennial households. Um, And some of the older millennial households that have already started to have families, they've preferred to move out of the apartments downtown into single-family rental in the suburbs where there's maybe a little more space for their their families. So we've had... um, both at work, uh, the growth in the number of millennial households, as well as those families that have been owner-occupants were displaced from owner-occupancy through foreclosure or short sale and have moved into the single-family rental market. 
Yeah, so I want to ask you about those millennials because this has been a, a, a real sticking point for me. You know, discussing this with our colleagues in the multifamily sector, whether they're investors or developers, I think a lot of people have this notion that you know millennials, uh, you know, will always and forever prefer to live in you know studio and one bedroom apartments in the urban core, uh, affording them walkability and access to you know all of the amenities that uh, that they want to be able to reach easily. Uh, but when we look at the oldest millennials, what we see is that um, their patterns of behavior, their preferences, um, you know, do change and evolve as they move through the household life cycle. What do we see those oldest millennials doing, and how is that impacting sort of your, the, their their preferences either for that studio apartment in the urban core or, in this case, that single-family home? Well, the median age of a first-time homeowner has gradually moved a little bit older over time, and currently it's about 31, 32 years of age. So the the older part of the millennial cohort, those are the households where the head is aged in the early 30s. So that that leading edge of the millennial cohort uh, is really your prime candidate for being a first-time home buyer. Um, now, the the largest um, Population-wise, the largest piece of the millennial cohort are really those uh, millennials who are aged 26, 27, even 28 years of age today. Um, And so there is still strong rental demand coming from the millennial cohort because the bulk of the cohort is actually still aged less than 30 years of age. But over the next five, uh, five years and longer, we're going to see increasing numbers of millennials age into their early 30s to the, the, the prime age of being a first-time uh, home buyer. And so I think we'll continue to see uh, increasing uh, shift toward uh, purchase demand, but also uh, increasing demand for single-family rental for those millennials who choose to raise their families in more of a suburban setting but still stay as a renter as opposed to an owner. Right. So I don't, we're focusing on single-family rentals today, but I, I have to ask one more question about this. Uh, you know, as that millennial population ages, as we describe, um, you know, how they're moving into single-family homes, you know, as the household uh, moves through its life cycle, uh, what does that imply for demand for core urban studios and one bedrooms over the next several years? I think the demand will probably hold up. Um, uh, We've already seen new apartment rental construction slow down over the last couple of years. Uh, Rental apartment construction nationwide was approaching 400,000 units a year a couple of years ago. That's already back down to about 350,000 new starts per year. Um, And so the uh, builders and developers have responded to some of the slowing demand that they have seen uh, in the marketplace already by reducing the pace of new construction compared to what we saw a couple of years ago. Um, but I do think at, at about a 350,000-unit construction pace for rental apartment buildings, I think it will be sufficient demand to, to keep up with that new supply. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Frank Notaf, Chief Economist at CoreLogic. Frank, where you've described folks you know, moving to the suburbs, there are amenities like good quality schools that folks want to have access to as their families grow. You know, They uh, you know, want to be renters versus owners. 
how much of that is a preference and a desire to be a renter because of the flexibility that it affords and how much of it is uh, either uh, you know a family financial constraint and being able to qualify for a mortgage or or the tightness of the mortgage market Oh, I really think both components are playing a, a role. Um, for many uh, young households, they really do prefer that flexibility. They, they're, they're raising their kids. They want to have more space for their kids, and that's what's attractive about renting a single-family home because they, they may get a little bit of a lot um, and a little more space to raise their kids. It gives them access to better quality schools, and yet it may still be close enough in suburban location that the commute is actually pretty pretty good uh, to to their um, to their jobs in the in the um, the central business district so there are a lot of attractions but a lot of the millennials have grown up with student debt and um, other uh, financial obligations and for them uh, they may find it more challenging to uh, save up the the funds that are needed to purchase a home and because of, of that, uh, they are choosing to rent for a longer period of time. And uh, that's one reason the age of moving into becoming a first-time home buyer has um, uh, increased to an older age than was true you know, for, for their parents' cohort. So, and, and moving over to that other side of it, folks who aren't necessarily buying their homes for the first time, uh, but maybe did lose their homes, as you described, 10 million you know, American families did. Um, what are the dynamics here? What I'm wondering is, you know, if I lost my home because I couldn't make payments during the crisis, uh, I may have become a renter in my home after an, an investor came in. Are there mechanisms through which uh, I could own my home again? Um, are there programs that facilitate that? Or, or am I destined to remain a, a renter if I want to stay in that house? Well, you're not destined to remain a renter. Uh, you can transition back into home ownership. The important thing is that you have to repair your your financial house. So um, uh, once you've defaulted on your loan and gone through a foreclosure, your credit score has really taken a big hit. Uh, it'll take several years to repair your credit uh, score um, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. After seven years, um, credit uh, uh, damaging credit information is removed from your file. So if you've been able to maintain good credit or better credit, um, better pay, pay, uh, payback of your debts, after the foreclosure on your other consumer debts, your credit score will improve and you'll be in a much better position. The FHA program, the Federal Housing Administration Government Insurance Program for Loans, uh, tends to be a bit more uh, flexible and lenient with underwriting. And um, it's possible if you've taken steps to improve your own financial house that you might be able to be back in the market to buy a home uh, within just a, a few years after the foreclosure. So if folks did lose their homes in the early part of the crisis, I imagine that you know that uh, you know that uh, improvement in their their credit score, their credit report is something that you know they they would have experienced you know perhaps just even just the last year or two. Have we seen meaningful numbers of people that uh, you know, lost their homes that you know as their credit reports have have been cleared uh, have come back to the market to work to buy a home? Uh, absolutely, um, and. Not everybody, obviously, has come back, but what we have found is that about 35% uh, or so of 
homeowners who lost their home through a foreclosure, they have come back within 10 years to buy another home and become an owner-occupant. So that's about 35% over a 10-year period that have come back and become homeowners once again. But when we look at the dynamics of this market, I know we have access to a lot of data updated fairly regularly with regard to rent growth trends in the multifamily uh, that uh, you know market in the United States, and we've gone through a long period uh, where you know, rents uh, in many markets have been growing faster than people's incomes. Are there comparable metrics that allow us to track you know the the direction of of rent growth for single family homes? Well, at CoreLogic, we developed a a rental index specifically for that need, for the single-family rental market. And I think it's actually kind of neat. What we did was we used the same technology that we use at CoreLogic for our Case-Shiller Home Price Index. And as you know, Sam, that's a repeat transactions uh, uh, index construction. So we use the same type of methodology. What that means is that we, we observe uh, a, a series of tenants who are renting a single-family home, and we observe what the rent is that they pay on that single-family home. And if we have enough of those uh, match pairs or series of tenants across a large number of single-family homes, we can create a rent index and actually directly observe rent growth on, on single-family homes, and that's what we've constructed, uh, and, and we've constructed it over time and across a, a number of different metropolitan areas. Is that something that folks could find on the CoreLogic website? Uh, they can find information about the single-family rental index on CoreLogic's uh, website. We have uh, blogs where we, um, we discuss the latest uh, results. We have a new press release that we're putting out each and every single month that provides an update on what the trends are in, single, in the single-family rent growth. And what does that single-family rent growth look like right now? Is it, uh, as a benchmark, uh, running uh, hot uh, you know, as compared to income growth or, or, or things staying pretty much in check? Well, overall, we're seeing rents rising uh, faster than inflation and a little bit faster than income growth. So, for example, in the U.S. average for all single-family rental over the past year, uh, single-family rents are up about 3% on a year-over-year basis. And what's interesting is that we can actually separate out low-rent single-family homes, that is, those, who sent, um, those, homes, so those single-family homes that rent for less than like the median rent in the um, uh, metropolitan area, and compare how fast their rent is growing relative to higher-rent single-family homes. And what we find is that there's a faster growth in the low-rent tier of single-family rental homes. The, the rent is rising about 4% over the last year for the cheaper, more affordable single-family rental homes, which in my mind illustrates the, the pressing demand that there is out there for more affordable single-family rental homes. Right. I imagine that you know, from a policy perspective certainly is problematic in as much when we look at the you know, lower tier of the income spectrum, uh, you know, that is where we observe you know, some of the slowest income growth as well. So to hear that that's where we've got you know, the most upward pressure on, on rents you know, has to be a factor in the erosion of affordability. 
Oh, absolutely, Sam. And I'm really glad you brought up that point. Uh, we, we see very strong demand. We also see relatively weak growth for lower income, low and low and moderate income uh, families, and uh, limited additions of new supply. Much of the new supply that's either being constructed or coming into the market uh, by other means tends to be more um, you know, median price or median rent or, or a little bit more expensive. Um, certainly in the multifamily rental construction uh, segment, a lot of the new construction tends to be multifamily apartments with a lot of amenities, um, uh, higher quality, and also that command a higher market rent than the uh, typical um, rent uh, on existing uh, rental homes in a market. So as we move from a marketplace where there do tend to be a lot of you know individual investors, highly fragmented market, to one that's a little bit more formal, I guess a really basic question, you know, for folks that have invested in this space, for the institutions that have come in over the course of this cycle, is this proving to be a, a profitable business? Um, and, and that's a really great question. And we looked at that using our single-family rental index, our, um, our uh, single-family home price index, and using some data from a Census Bureau survey, the uh, Rental Housing Finance Survey of 2015, to try to uh, develop a um, total return index or metric for single-family rental, because uh, there isn't any, any metric like that out there uh, that's available for single-family rental over time. And what we found was that uh, the total return on single-family rental, it varies a little bit from year to year. Uh, during 2017, the total return was about uh, 8% on uh, single-family rental. And when we look look at the average annual return over the last five years, it was about 9% per year, which is interesting because that's very comparable to what we see the average annual return to be on rental apartment buildings. How much of that depends on am I being able to actually acquire the home at a uh, relatively low or depressed price? Uh, well, that certainly helps because that adds to the uh, capital appreciation. And what we did observe in our calculation of return on on single family is that the return uh, has two components, as it does for any other type of real estate. It's the income return, the net operating income, and it's the capital appreciation after um, you know structural. Um, uh, additions and uh, improvements to the property. And what we found for uh, single-family rental was that the, uh, the capital gain is actually playing a more important uh, or, or represents a higher proportion of the total return over the last five years than uh, is true for the rental apartment building segment. Got it. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Frank Notaft, Chief Economist at CoreLogic, formerly Chief Economist at Freddie Mac. Frank, I had a conversation yesterday, or I hosted a conversation yesterday with some of our colleagues from Freddie Mac who are heading up their new single-family rental pilot program. And I guess broadly... You know, uh, REITs have access to a variety of channels for capital raising. Uh, how do investors generally, um, you know, get the funds, get the financing to actually, uh, you know, build a portfolio of single-family homes? 
well, REITs and larger uh, corporations that are uh, doing um, wide-scale investment, single-family rental, they can tap um, the broader capital markets to access funds. But uh, as we discussed earlier, roughly 80% of single-family rental stock in the U.S. is owned by the individual investor, the mom and pop. And for uh, that small individual investor, the typical way they'd finance it is either through their own um, you know, uh, uh, funds that they have available or by going to a mortgage lender. Uh, that's the typical way that they would uh, finance it. It could be um, a bank, it could be a, um, a mortgage company, uh, and obtain the funds that they need that way to purchase um, the uh, single-family rental home. Yeah, so you know, we've obviously seen, um, and you and I have been on the front lines of some of the really big ups and downs in the housing market over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, when you're looking forward, what's your prognosis here? Is you know the single-family rental market um, you know, something that you know, maybe has not had a very high profile historically, uh, you know, is, is this now sort of an entrenched part of the residential landscape in the United States? I think it is here in the near term, and it's partly because we have a really large millennial cohort, and uh, even as they age and start having you know, families and, and children, they'll want to live in a single-family home not necessarily as an owner-occupant. Uh, for the reasons we talked about earlier, they may want to have that uh, greater flexibility uh, to move and relocate, and also they may still be saddled with um, a lot of student debt and other obligations that make it hard for them to qualify for a mortgage. So I do think that we'll see uh, increasing demand for single-family rental homes in coming years coming from the millennial cohort. Yeah, one of the things that you and I have spoken about during previous programs is that you know we have had very limited uh, additions to the supply from construction. Um, if demand is improving, uh, is there any relief on the horizon? Are we going to enter into a stage of the cycle where uh, we do start to see more construction of you know entry level first time buyer type homes? Well, we're beginning to see that at the margin. Uh, the number of, uh, of new single-family starts uh, has been slowly but steadily rising each of the last several years. And I do expect single-family construction to rise further in uh, 2018 and into 2019 as well. Uh, and at the margin, we're seeing some builders uh, uh, try to build more to the um, uh, entry-level market, either for home buying or for renting. Um, there are a lot of challenges, as you know, Sam, in trying to build a home that's more affordable uh, because there have been uh, so many increases in uh, regulatory costs um, and uh, more recently also with with the cost of lumber, um, the cost of labor. Um, this, that all adds to the cost of a, of a new single-family home construction. So it's... Um, it's, it's challenging, but at the margin, we have seen a gradual increase in the total number of single-family starts, but also starts that are um, smaller in square foot of living space, so uh, it could be uh, built at a, a more affordable price for a, a, a moderate-income family. 
Yeah, and for listeners, please, please do stay with us. In the second part of today's program, I'll be joined by uh, Jenny Schutz from the Brookings Institution. We'll be talking about some of the dynamics of housing supply in the United States. Frank, we have a few minutes left. I, I want to just shift gears and talk about the broader housing market, CoreLogic. You know, obviously, there are you know, tracks and reports on the market regularly. Th- thus far into 2018, how do the trends look? Trends are looking really good for the um, the housing market overall, both for single family and for multifamily. Um, we've continued to see uh, house prices rising in our home price index. We continue to see on a year-over-year basis house prices up about six to seven percent. Uh, rents are also rising; they're rising at about three percent or so on a year-over-year basis. Um, and when we look at the overall level of home sales. So far this year, home sales are holding up, and they're, um, uh, we're expecting increases in, in uh, new home sales and even a little bit for existing home sales. As you know, Sam, there was a lot of um, concern about what the impacts might be of tax reform uh, on the uh, decision to buy homes and on housing demand overall. So far, based on all of the core logic data that we've looked at and examined, uh, we don't really, we haven't seen any material um, effect, either bad or or, or good, on uh, on on home prices, on home sales, on inventory of homes on the market for sale. That still seems to be holding up pretty well. Uh, is there a localized impact that perhaps we're able to observe, uh, you know, uh, in a state like New Jersey or New York, where property taxes are high, uh, the SALT deduction cap is coming into play, um, you know, or is it really across the board that we're not at this point, you know, seeing a meaningful impact from tax reform? As you know, Sam, uh, a lot of the expectations, including my own, was that high cost markets um, are going to were going to be impacted um, much more than lower-cost areas, and that's why with our CoreLogic data, we've been separating high-cost markets from low-cost markets, looking at neighborhoods, and so far, we haven't seen any material impact of tax reform. Again, very early, still, it's only a, you know, a few months after tax reform was passed, but so far, we haven't seen those effects. And, and maybe for high-cost areas, there's some relief coming in because of the um, uh, the, the much lessened bite of uh, the AMT. Uh, and a lot of people were uh, caught uh, in, uh, by the AMT when they, you know, living in high-cost markets, which prohibited them from really taking advantage of a lot of the state and local income and uh, property tax deductions. And now they can. So... We have uh, just a moment left. I want to ask you very quickly about the impact of the rising interest rate environment. You know, I always try to keep in mind, you know, you know, maintain your perspective. By historic norms, rates are still very, very low. Uh, any impact uh, from you know the rise in uh, you know, baseline interest rates or mortgage rates thus far? One of the impacts will be, I believe, that um, some many homeowners who might have otherwise have put their home on the market for for sale and moved to another home will, at the margin, have second thoughts about that and stay in their current home longer, in part because they have a very cheap mortgage rate. Many people have refinanced or purchased over the last few years when mortgage rates were 3 3.5%. Mortgage rates are now 4.5% and probably going higher. And so those homeowners, current homeowners who have a cheap mortgage rate, many of them will, will decide to stay in their home a bit longer maybe make some home improvements, additions, structural changes to make the home fit their current needs better. Uh, 
um, but then choose not to, to move. So right now we see a very, very uh, limited inventory of homes available for sale in lots of markets. I don't think that's going to change. I think the very low inventory for sale is going to continue uh, throughout this year and into next year, in part because of the rising rate environment. One positive uh, uh, aspect is because some homeowners will choose to stay in their home longer, we may see some additional home improvement expenditures. some additional, um, you know, additions, alterations, renovations that current homeowners make in their homes since they've now made a decision to stay in their current home longer. Thanks so much for joining me on the program, Frank. Thanks for having me, Sam. That was Dr. Frank Notaf, Chief Economist at CoreLogic. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, I'll be joined by the Brookings Institution's Dr. Jenny Schutz. We'll be discussing her research into the current housing shortage, its impact on prices, and the affordability of homes for American families. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Wharton's Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.